I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. Too big to fail and getting bigger. I'm talking with Anat Admati about the banker's new clothes. Banks are always somehow tied to governments and politicians. I'll let you take the risk. I love to take the risk. Let's hope for the best. You know, I'll be gone, you'll be gone by the time it comes back, and then it's nobody's fault. The financial system continues to be fragile, and the banks continue to live dangerously. You leave this system to its own devices, and good luck to all of us. It cannot work without regulation because it's got us. It's like a hostage situation. Thanks for joining us. It's been six years this summer, believe it or not, but I'll bet you remember how disastrous the financial meltdown was in 2008, how scared we were and angry at the banking industry's blatant negligence, arrogance, and greed. And remember all the guilty CEOs who went to jail for their wrongdoing? Yeah, neither do I. But maybe you do remember our broadcast last week on which the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz compared how the government responded during the financial crash to the police mollycoddling a drunk driver. What we did was analogous to we take the perpetrator, the guy who was the drunk driver, to the hospital, but we leave the guy that's been hit on the street. And then we say, oh, by the way, you don't have to pay for any damage that you've done. So even after they pay back the government, the real question is, who's responsible for all the damage that's been done to our economy? The people who've lost their job, that lost their home, the banks haven't paid back a cent of that liability, and that's a real corporate responsibility. My guest this week is just as outraged as Joe Stiglitz and just as great an advocate for reform, banking reform. Anat Admati teaches finance and economics at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and has been at the forefront of the debate on how best to regulate our banks to make them more responsible to the public interest. Time magazine named her one of the most influential people for 2014, in part because of this book, The Banker's New Clothes, co-authored with Martin Helwig. Reviews have described it as powerful, crucial, a call to arms, and the most important book to emerge from the crisis. Anand Mahdi, welcome. Thank you. Can what happened six years ago happen again? Yes, because the banks continue, the financial system continues to be fragile, and the banks continue to live dangerously. And when you speed at 100 miles an hour, you might explode and harm other people. And that's what they're doing, 100 miles an hour, despite... The fact that we thought after the crash that we had learned some lessons, we were going to have a discussion and institute some reforms that would prevent it from happening again? We have a tweak is what we have. We have some tweaks. We have messy, unfocused efforts, but we haven't really gotten to the heart of the matter and really managed to control this system effectively. But as you surely know, the bankers tell us not only do we have a safer system, but it's getting even better as reforms are put into place. But you look skeptical. Well, they are truly trying to confuse people with their narratives. They just either speak in language that nobody can understand, or they say things sometimes are completely wrong and sometimes they're just misleading. But if you step back and look at the system, it's very fragile 
it's one of those systems that's like a big house of cards. You touch it, stuff can happen fast, and it's far, far from any system that we would think of as reasonably stable, able to support the economy, all of that. And are they still taking these risks? Oh, enormous. Any, any, by any measure of exposures to derivatives and the amount of debt versus their own money that they have, by most of these measures, it's incredibly distorted and dangerous. I learned from you that two years before the financial crisis, the average size of the top 28 banks was $1.35 trillion. The average size last year, $1.7 trillion. And you say these too-big-to-fail banks are particularly reckless and dangerous. Look at them. They basically become uh, above the law. The people in them uh, are able to do things that most other corporations would worry more about them doing because they can benefit from upsides all through the chain and uh, their creditors don't worry enough as much as other creditors would, would worry. And uh, the downside eventually is, is everybody. So by just taking the risk, they're able to pass on some of their costs to, to other people. That's kind of how it works for them. Paul Krugman writes that our economic policy has been governed by the implicit slogan, quote, save the bankers, save the world. That's the argument the banks have been making, meaning that if, if we restore confidence in the financial system, prosperity will follow, and you're skeptical. I'm very skeptical because they're very unhealthy corporations. The notion that what happens to them, all the Geithner spin, you know, we were just here to save them so that they'll save you. Yes. So most people, including myself, don't argue with the fact that you don't want the system to implode because it'd be very disruptive the way it was in the Depression. But it does not mean that you get back in the car and drive at 100 miles an hour. And right now, as we speak, the regulators are making the same mistakes that they made right before the crisis. What do you mean? They're allowing the banks to remain incredibly opaque and indebted and interconnected so that they can harm us again. You mentioned Tim Geithner a moment ago. John Stewart interviewed the former Treasury Secretary last month and reminded him, as you yeah. have said, that the bank, bankers haven't really been penalized for their sins. Here's the exchange. They have yet to pay uh, any price for it. Forget about Old Testament justice. They haven't paid New Age justice for it yet. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you it's unfair. I'm agreeing we didn't give the measure of justice against that. But I am of completely confident. I'm yes. completely confident that the alternative strategy that would have been more comfortable to you at the beginning, you would have cheered us for, you would have loved us for, would have been devastating to the people you're most worried about. I'm going to agree with both of them. <laughs> I'm going to agree with both of them. That's not the right question. So what was the alternative? That's the problem. That's a hostage situation. What are you going to do at the moment? The problem then is, okay, you let the trucks drive at 100 miles an hour, and they imploded, and now you know there's collateral damage. The point is, why not a speed limit? Why are we here? Why did we let... What Geithner is ignoring is that he, as a regulator and as a policymaker, allowed this under his nose and then didn't do anything about it afterwards. That's the bigger problem there, is that's the people I blame. I watched Occupy Wall Street, and I thought to myself, 
They don't know where to put their tent. Put your tent in front of the New York Fed. They failed. How do you get justice when it was a mistake and not a crime? Well, there's no, we can't, you can't always get justice. That's the problem. What you need to do is try to prevent the harm. That's my focus. And you can. What's maddening about this situation is how we're accepting this as if it's some kind of natural disasters that happened to us and we have to live with them. And that's the image they try to portray, that the earth just opened and we, were, we had to send the ambulances. That's the way they tell it. That's the wrong way to view it. When, in fact, preventive medicine, if the regulators had been doing their jobs, exactly. uh, would have avoided this calamity. That diverts attention from their own failure before and since. And that's what's so outrageous about this, is that you can make mistakes, but you must learn. And they did not. And they're still failing. I'm persuaded by your book. You and Martin Helwig argue that banks should risk more of their own money and less of everyone else's. Why would they want to do that? They wouldn't want to. This is not going to happen voluntarily. This requires regulation. What you have is, for other industries, if you look around, without any regulation, and despite the tax code, rewards debt over equity for corporations and for buying homes, too. Despite that, no corporation and no regulation gets anywhere near the kind of indebtedness that the banks do. And the banks don't have to be so indebted. Yes, some of their business is in taking deposits, which is debt. But to get to have 90 or 95 percent of the money you're spending be money you made promises on, to live on like a tiny equity margin, no corporations live like that without regulation. In my part of the world, Silicon Valley... A lot of risk is taken, more risk than making loans, risk in innovation, right. risk is taken by, by manufacturers of all kinds of new industries, and they may, may have total losses with them, but they don't fund it with so much borrowed money. And so the banks should, if they were just more like normal corporations, they might begin to even make more reasonable decisions. Right now, they live entirely on the edge and are all distorted and inefficient, and somehow, for them, it still works. They live entirely on the edge, you just said. Yes. But we're there with them. We are there with them. They take us all down, but they, as, as they drive through the edge or they live on the edge, it works for them. Yeah, they, they live on the edge. Because they know the government is their backstop. Exactly, the and taxpayer. their creditors know, and so they're able to get people to let them use money that if they were anybody else, they couldn't. If you just kind of erased all the labels and you just presented the, their balance sheets, their disclosures to a prudent investor, they couldn't borrow a penny. Given how opaque their disclosures are and given how much risk is in there all over the place, nobody would bother, but they get away with it. And you're saying that if we require banks to increase their equity, a yep. third or... 20, 30 percent, yeah. That will make them safer. It's, it would make them safer, and if everything you can think about is going to be better. So I'm not saying it's the silver bullet and the only thing, but it's the most no-brainer thing to do because it would only reduce all the distortion and would correct what's wrong now. And almost everything that's wrong basically comes down to too much bank borrowing and bad regulation. So how do we get them to use 
more of their own money for the great risk they take. There is nothing except make them stronger and get rid of the ones that are not viable. In the crisis, quite clearly, uh, many claims anyway, and it's quite reasonable to think that Citigroup and Bank of America too became insolvent. If you were to try to liquidate them on that minute, they wouldn't. They, they just had negative equity, call it, okay? They were underwater, which for a corporation usually forces a bankruptcy or a restructuring. Right. Instead, they were nursed back to life from, the, from zombies, and you call it. <laughs> and so the thing to do is any corporation, normal corporation, that becomes, that lives on the edge and has creditors breathing down their neck is going to be forced to go to ask shareholders for money and show them what their business is. I want the banks to go to shareholders, to investors, to equity investors. First of all, retain all their earnings. They should back up their liabilities and their deposits and everybody else that they're harming. They should use them for lending. should use them for anything but to pay them out so they can keep borrowing. And then the my stress test is a very simple market test that all even, you know, all in this country, all the capitalists should like. Go sell your, your investments to some shareholder that bears the downside and see what they'll give you for your investment. If your stock price goes down, well, that, then it may be corrected to the right price. Maybe it's too high right now because of the subsidies that you're running. And let's see, if you cannot raise equity at a, any price, that might mean you're, you can't live without subsidies. So you're saying raise more capital, more equity more of equity. your own, and take your risks with, with that. With it. Yep. Was there a positive step in that regard in uh, April? Regulators issued a new rule that required the big banks to maintain overall equity of 5%, up roughly Six. from 3%, and 6% for federally insured uh, subsidiaries. Is that a significant improvement? 5%? Who lives like that? That's ridiculous. What do you mean? No corporation lives on 5% equity on a regular basis. Certainly not corporations that can harm other people when they go down, even into distress that everybody starts getting nervous. The more credible they're going to make the notion of letting them fail, the more everybody's going to scurry before that, and you're going to get all these runs and instabilities just at the, at the thought of it. That's what we saw with Bear Stearns, with Lehman Brothers. But that's what you could read in the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. That the instability started, you know, before Bear Stearns went under, before Lehman Brothers went under. That's the problem is you want to keep them way in a different range. And there's no science, I assert to you, no science behind any of these numbers. None. It's just that we got here and the banks hate to move from here. But there's, it's nothing about what we can do and should do and should focus on because if you did that then you might have to do less of some of the other stuff and the rest of the regulation is very technical with all these very complex risk measures it goes thousands of pages that nobody can decipher and so a lot of the regulations just got so complicated instead of focusing on on basically sort of your basic speed limits being able to measure things and see things more, more clearly so that you can maintain the system it, it can do for the economy on good times and bad times much more consistently and much without fewer, with fewer distortions. So the takeaway is that as long as we are subsidizing these banks, as long as we guarantee them that they are too big to fail, we're not safe. That's right. And we're subsidizing perversely 
the harm because we're encouraging them to, do, to live more and more dangerously. And they tell us it's for our benefit, but we are the ones paying. So it's as if you subsidized somebody to pollute the river when they have a clean alternative. I mean, I'd subsidize their equity if I had to subsidize anything, but we're subsidizing them only through debt. They only get the subsidies when they use debt. And so because when they use debt, their creditors give them very easy terms, depositors and other people who believe they'll be paid. And so they're able to, if they went to equity markets, they would be facing the same investors that everybody else faces. And so if they have good investments to make, they but should they, make them. But they don't want to do that. Exactly. They just don't want to. So the point is... They got a good is, deal. They got a great deal. And so what they're going to do is if they make profit, they want to pay them out and keep borrowing. And so there's nothing essential about that or nothing good about that except for a few people. And then who exactly wins and loses, they might tell, pacify the shareholders by saying, here, we'll give you dividends, we'll give you dividends in good times. And then when the bad time come or when they have fines or anything else happens, the shareholders pay. And who are the shareholders? That's also all of us through our pension funds. And how did we do on the S&P 500? Very poorly. So the notion that these institutions, by living dangerously, somehow help us, that's completely nonsense. And so what we have is a really unhealthy system that we perversely get talked into subsidizing and supporting. Anat Admati, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A postscript. The Washington Post reports that Bank of America is negotiating to pay at least $12 billion to settle several federal and state investigations into the housing mess that led to the 2008 crash. Around $5 billion of the fine would go toward mortgage relief or helping communities that were devastated by the bank's reckless and immoral practices. Here's the paragraph in the Post story that blazons like a neon sign outside a sleazy motel thriving on one-hour rates. Quote, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and others are accused of selling shoddy home loans to unqualified consumers, packaging those mortgages into securities, allegedly knowing they would eventually go sour, and selling them to investors around the world. A puzzle reader wrote to the Post, Isn't this what a Ponzi scheme does? Last month, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, spoke bluntly about scandals that violate the most basic ethical norms, about how banks and other financial institutions had engaged in risk-taking, leverage, opacity, complexity, and compensation, including illegal foreclosures, money laundering, and the fixing of interest rate benchmarks. Quote, while some changes in behavior are taking place, Ms. Lagarde said, these are not deep or broad enough. That's putting it mildly. Name one big-time banker who's been held responsible for his, yes, they're all male, his role on the wrecking crew. To the contrary, the banks that brought us down are riding higher than ever. Sure, some are paying fines, but even $12 billion is mere piggy bank change for Bank of America. And those CEOs, still shamelessly gorging on the spoils that flow from being too big to fail or jail. The Financial Times reports that banking chief executives got an average pay increase of 10% last year and took home, on average, $13 million. Compliments 
of benign and compliant boards of directors who are in on the racket. These gentlemen are among the leaders of the industry's efforts to repeal or water down some of the tougher rules and regulations enacted in the Dodd-Frank legislation that was passed to prevent another crash. As usual, they're swelling their ranks with the very people who helped to write that bill. More than two dozen federal officials have pushed through the revolving door to the private sector they once sought to regulate. And then there are the lapdogs in Congress willfully collaborating with the financial industry. As the Center for Public Integrity put it recently, they are Wall Street's secret weapon, a handful of representatives at the beck and call of the banks eager to do their bidding. Jeb Hensarling is their head honcho. The Republican from Texas chairs the House Financial Services Committee, which functions for Wall Street like one of those no-tell motels with the neon sign. Hensarling makes no bones as to where his loyalties lie. Occasionally, we've been accused of trying to undermine aspects of Dodd-Frank, he said recently, adding with a chuckle, I hope we're guilty of it. Guilty as charged, Congressman, and it tells us all we need to know about our bought and paid for government that you think is funny. At our website, BillMoyers.com, find out more about banks and reform and share your thoughts about this and other recent Moyers & Company interviews. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America. Designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.